Welcome to episode 259 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Fast, Feast, Repeat, a comprehensive guide to delay, don't deny, intermittent fasting. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get my favorite electrolytes for free, plus special announcement, Element's new chocolate medley is here. So when you think electrolytes, you might think summer and hot times and needing to stay hydrated. But did you know that hydration is actually super important in cold weather as well? There's an idea out there that cold weather reduces our hydration needs. That's not true. So in the cold, two main things can actually increase our metabolic rate. You may be working harder, tramping through the snow, and you can be wearing cumbersome winter clothing that can actually raise your energy needs by 10 to 20%. And as your metabolic rate raises, your sweat rate raises and you need to replace those fluids with electrolytes. You also lose more water when it's cold through your breath. That's because cold temperatures contain significantly less water than hot temperatures, AKA it's drier outside. When you breathe in that cold, dry air, your respiratory system actually acts like a humidifier so that your body can be warm and humid like it likes to be. Of course, that drains your hydration reserves as well. One study actually found that respiratory water loss after a full day of activity nearly doubled at freezing temperatures compared to the 70s. On top of that, when you're cold, you actually become less thirsty, possibly from blood vessel constrictions in the cold, which can trick the body into thinking the blood volume is higher than it is. In other words, it's cold out there. You probably need hydration and electrolytes are so key for all of these cellular processes in your body, all of your energy production. It all requires electrolytes, but it can be hard to find electrolytes, which are clean without unnecessary fillers, and which you can feel good about drinking. That's why I love Element. There's a reason I'm obsessed with it. There's a reason all you guys are as well. And like I said, I'm so excited because Element's new chocolate medley is here featuring chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. And this is a limited time, so you definitely want to stock up on these now. Plus, you can get a free gift with purchase when you purchase that chocolate medley or other Element electrolytes. That's right, you can get a free sample pack, eight single serving packets for free with any Element order. It's a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. You can get yours at drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. That's drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast. By the way, those chocolates in that chocolate medley make delicious hot chocolates. And of course, as always, Element has a no questions asked refund, so you have nothing to lose. So go to drinklmnt.com slash ifpodcast to get your free electrolytes. 
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed, but with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 259 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? Freezing. I know. It's amazing. It's not amazing. Anyway, I will say that um, we just had the time change. We're recording this, you know, a few weeks before it comes out. It's It's my favorite time change. This is the one I like. Wait, that blows my mind. I know you like earlier, but do you like losing an hour of sleep? I don't lose, quote, lose an hour of sleep. I mean, you lose one hour of your life. But to me, you know, I didn't lose any sleep. What happens is it's like the time I naturally want to go to bed and the time I naturally wake up 
are more socially acceptable with this version of time. Like this morning, I woke up, and instead of looking at the clock and it was 5 a.m., and I'm like, man, it's too early to get up, I looked at the clock and it was 6 a.m., and I'm like, awesome, time to get up. That concept didn't occur to me. There would be a way to not lose sleep. Because I just wake up naturally. I don't ever wake up. And at night, see, the whole winter time, whatever the, I can never remember which is daylight savings, which is the other. I always have to look it up, which is standard, which is, anyway. But the winter version of it, I'm like ready to go to bed at 8.30 at night, every single night. And I just feel like, but when the time changes, suddenly that's 9.30 and it's okay to go to bed at 9.30 if you want to, but 8.30 feels crazy. So my natural, like I can no longer adjust. Like I naturally want to go to bed at the same time year round, but in the winter that's, I want to go to bed at 8.30 and I wake up at five. And in the summer, it's okay to go to bed at 9.30 and wake up at six. It's exactly the same. It's just I like what the clock says better. I think the reason, because this actually honestly did not occur to me. I mean, because I know there are people that are like you, but the reason I think it didn't occur to me was there's all those articles out there about how this time change has such a negative effect on people's health. So I just assumed it was kind of applying. I assumed even people who get up early were losing, you know, felt like they were losing an hour of sleep, but... That's interesting. Yeah, I do. I just wake up naturally. Now, it was different when I had to set an alarm clock and wake up to go to work. Like, I had to set my alarm clock for 5.30 to get up. And so you can see how that would be different. Like, today I naturally woke up at 6 a.m., new time. And had I had to set an alarm for 5.30, it would have been, you know, 30 minutes before I naturally woke up. But I really very much have, you know, just like you get in touch with your hunger and satiety cues, I am very much in touch with my I need to go to bed now cues. And I wake up naturally. So it's really hard for me to wake up and it's 5 a.m. And I'm like, it's just too early to get up, but I'm awake. But it's okay that it's six. Anyway, that's just, this is the one that fits with my natural rhythm better. I cannot honestly remember the last time I ever went to bed. And the reason was because, oh, I need to go to bed now. It is always me. I've like set in place all the programs that make my body fall asleep, but it's never like, oh, I need to go to bed. And my body tells me every night that I need to go to bed. And it's sometimes it's hard because I'll be like, I got to go to bed now. And Chad's like, what? (laughs) It's Saturday night. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care what night it is. Yeah, that's my dad. Yeah, but, you know, I've really always been like that, looking back to college and when, you know, I would always be the one who's like, I'm going back to the to the dorm now or whatever. <laughs> it was just always me. Wow. So I remember last time I said I was going to do a poll in the Facebook group. I do remember that. What was it about? I forgot. So that's the funny thing. So then I sat down. I was like, I'm going to do the poll. And then I was like, wait, what was the poll? <laughs> I do remember you were going to, but what it was about? No. At first I thought it was early versus late night eating. I was like, no, it's not that. And then I thought it was like a one meal day. Then I was like, no, it's not that. But I think I remembered what it was, which was how did people's coffee intake change based on fasting? So I asked in my group, how did starting fasting affect your coffee intake type, amount, etc." So I added originally like seven or eight options and then people added other options. But the most common response Do you want to guess? I'll give you um, the vibes. So like the types of options I gave were, you know, more coffee before fasting, more coffee after fasting, switching to black coffee, 
having more coffee in the beginning of fasting and then less, like basically I just came up with all the different options. What response would you come up with as the most common for people's coffee intake? I bet people would probably say that they drink more coffee now. Or also similar amounts as an option too. I bet they would say they drink more coffee now. I'm not sure if that's true. Because people, I just remember walking around my elementary school as a teacher and every single person that I passed had a coffee tumbler in their hand like all the time, like literally all the time. People had something in their hand that was coffee in there. So, but I bet people said they drink more now. So the number one vote with 186 people was I drank similar amounts of coffee before fasting but switch to black coffee for fasting. Well, okay. That's what I would say is true for me. But, I, you know, people don't always say, like, they might have a perception that it's different. Yeah. Well, good. That's, that's what I, happened for me as well. Similar. It's just black now. The second one with 92, so half of the amount is the first one, was I drank more coffee after fasting. Well, that's what I thought more people would pick. I'm not certain that it's true because, like I said, people always, like, this is when I was teaching, and the people are not walking around with black coffee. (laughs) They're walking around with their hot milkshakes. But I would think people might think they're drinking more than they used to. So the next one, 57 votes, was similar to the first one, but without the black coffee. So it was, I drank similar amounts of black coffee before and after fasting. 20 votes, I went cold turkey and switch to black coffee with fasting. That's kind of like a nuanced answer that doesn't really apply. Yeah, it doesn't tell us whether it's more or less. Yeah, this is the one I did. So 15 votes, I drank more coffee in the beginning of fasting, but now drink less coffee than I did before fasting. I think that's what we were talking about last time. Yeah, that's what you said you did, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, then it drops down. Like the next one is I gradually weaned myself off of cream and sweetener with fasting, which was 11 people. And then it just goes into really random miscellaneous things. But there's a lot of comments too about people talking about their coffee habits. People really like, people like discussing their coffee habits and fasting. Oh, trust me. Look, you know, I ran those those Facebook groups for so long and coffee was like the, it's like the hot button issue, no pun intended. People are really, really, you know, protective of what they think is how they have to have their coffee. I used to be, too. I had a period of mourning and, like, I'm just going to have to drink zero coffee rather than switch to black. But then I realized I enjoy the ritual of having, like, right now I'm drinking hot water because it's so freezing and it's it's in the afternoon. But I love my my hot coffee. I like the smell of it. I like brewing it. Yeah, I just I enjoy coffee. So black coffee, luckily I adjusted pretty quickly. Yep. I actually, so I was that the vote about I gradually weaned myself. I did not go cold turkey. I don't think. After I read the obesity code and I understood the cephalic phase insulin response, I mean, keep in mind, I'd already lost almost all of the weight. I lost the amount of weight I thought I wanted to lose at that point. I was at what I thought was my goal and but didn't understand the cephalic phase insulin response. Then the obesity code came came out and I read it and I'm like, oh gosh, I'm shooting myself in the foot with a stevia, vanilla cream stevia and cinnamon and sometimes lattes that I'm having and thinking I'm fasting. Once I really believe something is true like that, like after reading the obesity code and understanding the role of insulin, it explained why I was so hungry and it didn't make any sense to wean myself off. I knew I needed to stop. Totally makes sense. And sounds like a lot of people. 
easily switch. And it made a huge difference. Like I used to white knuckle it to my eating window every day. But because I was so desperate to lose the weight, then I lost 75 pounds, even though I wasn't fast and clean because I didn't know anything about that yet. (laughs) But it still, it was worth the white knuckling just to finally be at a goal weight. But it was still white knuckling. Like if I had not figured out the clean fast, would I be sitting here today Seven years later, after hitting my initial goal, still, you know, actually wearing smaller jeans than when I hit my initial goal. And by the way, two days from now, as of the date we're recording this, is my anniversary of hitting my goal. Seven years. Yep. Happy anniversary. I know. This is the first time in my adult life. Actually, it's the first time in my entire life, if you go back to childhood and beyond, that I've ever like worn the same clothes for seven years in a row. Not had to get bigger clothes. I mean, when I was a kid, I was constantly having to get bigger clothes because I was growing like children do. But this is the first time, seven years, I've not ever had to get clothes because I needed bigger clothes. This is the first time in my entire 52 years of life that I've gone seven years without needing bigger clothes. I'm just thinking about this now. I guess I've worn the same clothes since I really switched to a low-carb diet 10 years ago. Yeah. It's pretty amazing because I was such a yo-yo or all those years. And it's funny. Now that I am the same size all the time, it's funny to watch people who have never struggled with their weight and and looking at our wardrobes, right? Like I used to always have to buy new clothes because I was a totally different size. Maybe I was gaining weight. Maybe I was losing weight. Every every time the weather changed, I needed new clothes because I was a different size than I was the year before. I mean, I was constantly needing different clothes because I was always up or down, up or down. And so looking at people who are naturally Maybe naturally slim, for example. Like I think I have several friends who are naturally slim, and they've always been the same size. And sometimes you look at their outfits, and you're like, okay, it's time to get rid of that one, time to retire it, because it's out of style. So I am finally one of those people who has to go through my closet and say, all right, what's out of style, and get rid of those clothes. So my clothes never go out of style because I literally – like. I basically just wear black dresses, and they don't ever really go out of style. So I'm good. Well, black dresses do change. You're still young. Just wait. They do. I don't know. Like a classy black dress. I mean, I look back at some black dresses I've worn over my 52 years of life, even my adulthood, and there are definitely some of them that are not in style anymore. But maybe you're just getting 100% classic ones that'll never go out of style. Like I always wear like the classy black dress, like the cocktail black dress. I don't like sleeves, so it never has sleeves. There's not much that could be crazy. Fabrics change and the cuts change and the hem hem length changes. Things like that do change. Fabric really changes. I always wear cocktail length usually. So unless like the concept of a black cocktail dress goes out of style, I think I'm good. All right. Well, that's really unusual. (laughs) I mean, there are some clothes that are classic. When I was in Arizona in October, I pulled out a, a dress that I had from, I don't know, 20 years ago, and it still looked, it was classic. It was a very classic cut. It was a navy blue dress, very classic cut, but very few things in my closet I think would last like that. The majority of my closet would. And sometimes you don't even care because, like, for example, once my feet discovered how much they loved Uggs in the wintertime, I'm going to wear those forever because they're just so comfortable. Yeah. I think that's the way I am. 
I feel like I have my style that's me, and so it doesn't really matter. And it's, like, not a crazy style, so. I'm, for the most part, like that. But, you know, things like like shirts, like, it's mainly shirts that change. And I don't really wear shirts. I do. I Sherry, my friend that records Life Lessons with me, she's so funny. She told the story of one time, the first time she came to my house. We were getting ready to go on a cruise. I guess we were going to go together from my house. But she drove to my house, and I was getting ready to cook dinner. And she said that I, I said, I need to change my shirt to cook in. And I took off one blouse and put on a different blouse. Like She describes it as a blouse. That's just the way I, I you know, I, I dress up. <laughs> I changed, but I guess the, the whatever blouse I was wearing, the sleeves probably were too, like, going to get in the way. So I changed from one blouse to a different blouse, and she laughed, and I just thought that story was funny. I wear jeans pretty much every day, and unless it's summertime, and then I'll wear shorts. I haven't really contemplated this recently about, I don't really wear shirts. I have a lot of shirts, but you don't, you just wear dresses. Mm-hmm. And I basically have stopped wearing dresses unless it's, like, a really, like, a funeral like, I just had to go to a funeral last month, and I, it was a cold day, and I did not have a dress that you would want to wear in the cold, cold weather. So I wore pants. But everybody else had on pants. So I'm like, well, okay. Not to be like a sad topic, but a funeral I went to recently, we were actually discussing that, how how the, the, the attire for funerals has changed. Like, it's appropriate now. You can wear pants. Everybody had on pants. Like, every woman there, and the men, too. <laughs> Had on pants. So, yeah. I was, But I, at first, I, I was like, gosh, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever worn pants to a funeral. But I didn't have a, a wintry dress. And so I just wore a non-wintry dress with a jacket. All of my non-wintry dresses, like, are clearly, like, summer dresses. Yeah. Like the fabric or the pattern or whatever. Anyway, good times. <laughs> Not the funeral, but you know what I mean. Talking about clothing. The funeral was not good times. I could talk about clothing for the entire show. So so shall we jump into some things for today? Yep, let's get started. All right. So to start things off, we have a question from Marilyn. And the subject is IF and bariatric surgery. And Marilyn says, hi, ladies. Love, love, love your podcast and all that it's taught me about IF. I've been IFing for about three months and have had great success with weight loss, about 20 pounds in that time. I'm making my way through the podcast, but I haven't yet heard you address the issue of weight loss surgery with regard to how much someone can eat at one time and how that affects IF. In my experience, I can fast just fine, but because I cannot eat very much at a time, I cannot consume many calories in a short-ish eating window. I've experimented with 18.6, I didn't lose much weight, 24, I had decent weight loss, and one meal a day, again, decent weight loss, and 42-hour fasts, very good weight loss. Having said all of that, my primary goal no longer is weight loss, but autophagy. I'm a 57-year-old post-menopausal woman whose parents both suffer from neurodegenerative diseases. She says her dad has Parkinson's and her mom has Alzheimer's. And autophagy is a process believed to be highly protective against neurological degeneration. The question is, is daily IF enough to induce significant benefits of autophagy? Scientific literature that I've read indicates autophagy is maximized more in the 36 to 72 hour range. Because of my smaller stomach, I had gastric sleeve surgery May of 2019. I cannot eat more than approximately one cup of food at a time, and then it takes a couple of hours before I can eat more. I'm concerned about under eating 
in the longer fast scenarios and creating more of a calorie restriction situation rather than attaining the benefits I want from fasting, which is neurological support. Does that make sense? Whatever insight you can provide would be most appreciated. Keep up the good work and thank you for all that you do. All right. Great questions, Marilyn. Thank you for sending them in. And the best resource that I know of for, you know, what should we do if we want to prevent neurodegenerative diseases is um, Dr. Mark Matson. He is currently adjunct professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins, and he was the chief of the Laboratory of Neurosciences at the National Institute on Aging. So I think he's probably the the number one expert in the entire world when it comes to fasting and how it's neuroprotective. Like, seriously, I think he is. So guess what he does? He has a daily eating window, and he's been doing that since the 1980s. He doesn't do 36 to 72-hour fasts. So if the number one expert on neuroscience and fasting has a daily eating window, that's pretty good for me to realize that I don't need to think that I have to do more. That's just the way I look at it. You know, what he, I'll have what he's having, right? <laughs> so you may want to read his latest book. It came out, well, it's his, his first book. He also has written a lot of journal articles. But his book is called The Intermittent Fasting Revolution, The Science of Optimizing Health and Enhancing Performance. And it really reads like a, like a journal article because that's his background. He's, you know, written for medical journals his entire career. If you really want to dig into the science, that's where I would start. You know, that whole where you talk about autophagy being, quote, maximized between 36 to 72 hours, you just have to think about the source and what what they're actually doing. Like, for example, let's talk about a human. A lot of the research on autophagy is is not in humans, but let's, let's talk about humans. Let's imagine you're a human who doesn't fast at all. That person still has autophagy, but we're trying to maximize our autophagy or have increased autophagy. But if someone has no metabolic flexibility, they might need to fast for 36 to 72 hours before they experience increased autophagy. But for us, it's different. If you think about the state of ketosis that we get into when we're fasting, intermittent fasters who are metabolically flexible, we can get into ketosis every day. Now, someone who is not metabolically flexible, if they just started fasting, They might not get into ketosis for 72 hours or something. I'm just throwing that number out there. So does that mean that everybody has to fast for 72 hours to get into ketosis? No. So what does that have to do with autophagy? Are ketosis and autophagy the same thing? They are not. But they happen in the same state in the body. When we are in the fasted state and our body is rummaging around to find energy sources. So our body is rummaging around to find energy sources, turning fat into ketones. There's the ketosis. And at the same time, autophagy is upregulated because our body is like, well, we got no protein coming in. Let's recycle some old protein. So they happen at the, at the same kind of time. So just kind of think of it as when ketosis is maximized, autophagy is also getting ramped up at the same time. Now, if you enjoy doing 42-hour fasts, then, then do them. I actually, for you, however, because you mentioned that you have a hard time eating enough because of your gastric sleeve, you may want to do 36-hour fasts instead of 42 and then give yourself 12 hours to eat where you're eating your small amounts. So 36-12 might be a better approach to eat for you or even 40 
eight, where you're fasting for 40 hours, then you have an eight-hour eating window, because you're right. You don't want to undereat on your up day, and you've got that surgically altered stomach that is going to keep you from being able to actually be up if you have, like, for example, a six-hour window. I cannot imagine you eating enough food in six hours with your small stomach to really truly be considered up, like the research on up days. 36, 12, possibly 48 might be better for you. Now, if you'd like to listen to somebody who shared their story on intermittent fasting stories, someone who's been through a gastric bypass, Sue Wilsey, episode seven of Intermittent Fasting Stories is one to listen to. She talks about her struggles, just like you're saying, you can't sit down and eat a giant meal. Both Melanie and I, we were volume eaters, but you can't do that because your your body physically won't let you do that anymore. So, so see about that. Listen to that episode and think about how you can make sure if you're if you're doing the longer fasts, make sure your update is up enough. And if you really want to make yourself feel confident that you don't have to do the longer fasts to experience neurological benefits, check out Dr. Mark Matson's book, The Intermittent Fasting Revolution. Because like I said, he is probably the premier expert on neurological diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, and how fasting can be beneficial for those. And he eats every day. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically, everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream. So that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what magnesium 8 is. It contains eight forms of magnesium and their most absorbable forms so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption as well as chelated manganese because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers including rice which is very very common in a lot of supplements including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium 8 at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements including my first supplement that I made, Serapeptase. You guys love serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code MelanieAvalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MDLogic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash MDLogic. 
You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Awesome. So you had a lot of amazing thoughts and I I agree with most of it. I have a slightly different idea about one of the things. Yes. One thing that is important to point out, and Jen touched on this, but it's the concept, and she didn't really talk about this in her question, but just to dismantle an idea that's out there. So autophagy is not on or off. It's more like a dimmer switch. I think people often think that it's either on or it's or it's off, but it's actually, we have some sort of autophagy going 24 seven all the time. It just gets ramped up substantially with things like fasting, exercise, even coffee. Oh, she did say something about that. She said, oh, that the significant effects are, oh, that it's maximized in the 36 to 72 hour range, which is likely the case that the longer you fast, that autophagy will be substantially ramped up. So my initial thought was, I was actually thinking Marilyn might like to do something like a fasting mimicking diet a few times a year, which is what Walter Longo, he's a researcher at USC and the, the the gerontology school there, I believe. And he's done a lot of work and research on a five-day fasting mimicking type diet and the effects on autophagy. And so he has Prolon, which is a a commercial version that you can buy and just do it. Some people do their own DIY versions of it, but it's basically a super, super low calorie diet with very specific macros and very specific nutrients that stimulates a lot of the fasting epigenetic processes without actually being completely fasted. But you do get the ketones and the autophagy, and they've seen a lot of effects on the immune system, basically regenerating, which is pretty cool. So that's something that you could play with, especially since you're used to those smaller meals. Some people with the fasting mimicking diet, especially if they're coming from an intermittent fasting approach like I do, where they're eating really large meals, they're kind of just miserable doing a fasting mimicking diet because you're eating these really small meals. But if that's something you're used to, and, and if you're used to longer fasts, that might actually be something that would be a cool thing to try. And then I do like a lot what Jen said about the 36-hour fast, if it is something that you like. And then I guess the question I have is, and it sounds like maybe, I mean, you didn't say this, but the fact that you've experimented so much with these different fasts, although I wonder if these, do you think these fasts that she experimented with, do you think that was before or after her surgery? Well, the surgery was in 2019, so I would have a feeling. She says she's been doing IF for three months. Oh, okay. You're right. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Wow. Yes, that would be the answer. <laughs> Jen figured it out. So the fact that you've experimented with these and you didn't mention Cause the thing I'd be worried about is that you do these longer fasts and then you have this, not that it's like binging, but you have this, you know, intense need to eat a lot because some people do experience that, but you didn't mention that being a problem. So it sounds like you are able to do the longer fast and then just jump into a longer eating window. So if, if that is working for you, I think it's a great thing to continue doing. But I do really like what Jen said about how Mark Matson, right? How he 
does the daily eating window and, you know, loves that for the neurological protective effects. And I will do a plug. I would actually really, really suggest supplementing with serapeptase if you haven't. It is not autophagy, but what autophagy does in part is it's breaking down old and problematic proteins in our body and recycling them. And actually that's what serapeptase does. It actually goes in and breaks down problematic proteins. So I think it can really, really enhance that process. And there have actually been studies on serapeptase and it rivals the leading therapeutic used for breaking down amyloid plaque. It actually can do that as well, both in vitro and in vivo in animal studies. So what that means is putting serapeptase directly on amyloid plaque breaks it down, but also when rodents are given, and I think it was, it was definitely animal studies. I think it was rodents. When rodents are given serapeptase, it breaks down the amyloid plaque in their brain. So I would definitely suggest fasting and supplementing it with serapeptase. So you could get my Avalon X serapeptase at avalonx.us. But yeah, those are, those are my thoughts on all of that. Any other thoughts, Jen? Nope, I think that's it. Okie dokie. Shall we go on to our next question? Yes, we have a question from Leanne. She says, hi, I am a huge fan of your podcast and have read Delay, Don't Deny and What, When, Wine. I am a fasting disciple and always recommend your books as well as those from Dr. Jason Fung. I am an avid listener to your intermittent fasting podcast and have fasted clean since January 2019. I am 45 years old, so losing weight has not been easy in the last five years. However, right away I saw the benefits. I went quickly into one meal a day because it just felt right since I hate to diet. I did eat whatever I wanted and lost 10 pounds within six months. I could see the muscle mass increase. Since February of 2020, however, I have had weight gain, so I decided to start eating more healthy to try and lose the weight. I had many stressors in my life, a move, building a house, decrease of income due to cutbacks in company due to COVID, and my daughter graduated from high school. I have had many symptoms that point to high cortisol. After listening to episode 61, I'm very interested in trying, and it's it's a doctor that I interviewed for intermittent fasting stories, and I'm just, yeah. She said, I couldn't find on your website his number, and I believe I need to have my levels checked. I have been to several doctors and am currently on blood pressure meds. The doctors are only treating symptoms, high blood pressure, anxiety, insomnia, weight gain, low libido. I have noticed that I continue to not get hungry at my window, which is usually three or four, but my blood pressure is going higher the longer I wait to eat. This makes me so sad because I know it is the key to all my health problems. My question, can fasting make blood pressure increase if one has high cortisol levels? Thank you for your wisdom and insight. This lifestyle has truly changed my life. You're both a blessing from God. May he continue to bless each of you. All right, so this is an old question. It's from June of 2020. Yeah, there was a lot of COVID stress different in June of 2020 versus today. Can I real quick, before you answer it, Melanie, talk about the doctor that I interviewed for intermittent fasting stories? Yeah, that'd be great. When I had that interview, he is fantastic, by the way. I worked with him and Chad worked with him and he checked our levels. It was great. But for some reason, everybody's like, oh, let's all, we have to call, go to that doctor. He's the only doctor we can go to. No, <laughs> I'm not going to share his number. Or I notice I haven't even said his name because I don't want everyone to think that, and he was about to retire last time I talked to him. He was getting ready to retire, turning his practice over to you know, some of the younger doctors in the practice. 
it, it's really important to find somebody who's close to you. I really don't. I mean, telemedicine is amazing, and you know we can we can talk to people all over the place that way. But I, I really think the best thing to do is to find people close to you. And I I'm not comfortable endorsing one doctor. Okay, because here's what happened. People are like, well, I heard you talk to him on the podcast, so I'm going to call him. And then then they're like, maybe they didn't like what he said. And then they're like calling me or emailing me. And they're like, well, I talked to him and I didn't like what he said. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to endorse a doctor and say, this is the doctor you should go to. Me interviewing one should never be taken as an endorsement of that's the doctor everyone should go to. He is a very great guy and he's done amazing work with people. He uses fasting in his practice. But I want you to find somebody close to you that you can go see. I know that's easier said than done, but that's the best I can do. I I don't want to endorse any one doctor and let everyone think, like, here's the doctor that is magically going to solve everybody's problems. And and that's all I can say about that. (laughs) Does that make sense, Melanie? Yes, 100%. I do understand, Leanne, your frustration with doctors only treating symptoms because we know it's better to treat the root cause than just treating the symptoms. So I I get it. It, It's tricky till you can find somebody that really works with you the way that you need the doctor to work with you. A lot of this does sound like stress. Yeah, it definitely does. I actually wrote a blog post about it in the spring of 2020, and and it was about the pandemic and stress and how we were all under different kinds of stress than we'd ever really been under before. The whole, you know, even if you weren't moving, building a house and having your income cut back, just the whole COVID was just a crazy stress for all of us and not knowing what was happening. This question, if it wasn't posited in the context of cortisol and stress, I think the answer might be a little bit different than if the question was just fasting affecting blood pressure, if that makes sense. Because I did a lot of research on the effects of fasting on blood pressure, but then the caveat about all of that is these studies I'm looking at weren't looking at it really in the terms of a psychological stress. I don't know if in a stressful situation with a blood pressure context, maybe it is that fasting can raise blood pressure because of that psychological context of cortisol. I'll talk briefly about just blood pressure and fasting in general. So there's not a ton of studies, but there are some. And so these are all actually fairly recent studies. I read one study, a 2021 study, and it was called Effect of Intermittent Fasting and Chronotherapy on Blood Pressure Control and Hypertensive Patients During Ramadan. What's interesting is in that study, they say that studies on the effects of fasting on blood pressure and heart rate of hypertensive patients are rare and have provided inconclusive results. That said, All of the ones I pulled up that were recent were all favorable for fasting's effect on blood pressure, but apparently there are ones that are inconclusive. That 2021 study, they found that there was no significant changes in systolic and diastolic blood pressure, as well as heart rate during the two periods. So in their study, they found no effect on fasting and blood pressure. The other recent ones I looked at, there was blood pressure changes in 1,610 subjects with and without antihypertensive medication during long-term fasting. That was a 2020 study. They found that long-term fasting tends to decrease blood pressure in subjects with elevated blood pressure values and that the effect persisted during a four days of food reintroduction. 
even when the subject stopped their hypertensive medication. A 2020 study called The Effects of Ramadan Fasting on Anthropometric Measures, Blood Pressure, and Lipid Profile Among Hypertensive Patients found that Ramadan fasting could contribute to the improvement of blood pressure and also lower triglycerides, body weight, BMI, and WC of adult hypertensive patients. And then I found a 2022 study, effects of intermittent compared with continuous energy restriction on blood pressure control in overweight and obese patients with hypertension. It found that intermittent energy restriction is an effective alternative diet strategy for weight loss and blood pressure control and is comparable to continuous energy restriction. So basically calorie restriction in overweight and obese patients with hypertension. So that's a really quick overview of a lot of recent studies, but all the studies I saw looking at blood pressure control and fasting tended to find a favorable effect on blood pressure. All of that said, and this is how I started it, and this is going off of what Jen said, I don't know the psychological effect of the cortisol and the fact that Leanne is seeing that the longer she fasts, at least at the time that she sent in the question, that her blood pressure was going up. I mean, then that's what's happening. So I would suggest that she work with her doctor and find the approach that doesn't have that effect. And it might be that she's looking at the fasting, but it might be that she might be able to address the cortisol aspect of it without necessarily having to change the fasting so much. So there are a lot of lifestyle practices that you could implement to work on our, on stress levels. And I mean, so many things, you know, working on your, your light exposure, focusing on your sleep, things like meditation, gratitude, even things like CBD and supplements that might have a a beneficial effect, breathing exercises, cryotherapy. Like there are so many things you could do to try to work on your cortisol levels. Maybe the solution would be to ease off of the fasting a little bit and also really work on your other lifestyle habits that might be contributing to your cortisol and seeing if there's a way to address all of it that way. Do you have thoughts, Jen? Well, I I think that was, you said some great things there. Stress is such a, it has such an impact on so many things in our bodies. And so the, the period of time when she wrote this, June of 2020, was a very stressful period of time. So... I would love to have a follow-up, Leanne, and we could probably pop it to the top of the <laughs> of the queue, I would bet, if we would like to hear what, what actually happened. Because it's been over a year since we, we heard from her. And she also, it wasn't, and not even just COVID, she said she she moved, built a house, her daughter graduated from high school. So she had a lot. So definitely report back. And yes, like Jen said, we could bump it up. <laughs> Because I am, I'm very, very curious. And I will say for listeners, the show notes at ifpodcast.com slash episode 259 have a complete transcript as well as links to everything. So we'll put links to all of those studies there. So we have a question from Mary Ka. Is that how you would say it? I don't know. Marika, maybe, maybe Marika, or maybe it's Mary Kay, Marika, Mary Kay. It's a beautiful spelling. I just don't know how to say it. Yes. So she says, (laughs) the subject is eating after a strenuous workout. 
And Marika, Mary Ka, Mary Kay says, Hi, Jen and Melanie. It's so exciting to be writing to you finally. I love your show and the information and the dialogue between you two. Sometimes I laugh out loud while I am listening to you on my walks. Here's a little bit about me. I'm a 26-year-old mom of a six-year-old and one-and-a-half-year-old twins. She says, to lose weight for my first, I consistently counted calories and did IF. I have come back to and have been doing IF since I stopped nursing my twins at nine months old. I was 190 pounds in April 2021, and I am now 155 thanks to IF. I generally aim for 17.7, although it varies. I do clean fast, and I feel amazing when I do. I'd like to lose 20 to 25 more pounds. Here's my question. Do you have to eat after a strenuous workout? I recently started a kickboxing class, and my classes are later. I try to go two to three times a week. I rush home and put the kids to bed, and by the time I'm done, it's 8.30 or 9. Then I eat after that, like a wrap with chicken, Greek yogurt parfait, or protein smoothie. I feel better once I've eaten, but the next morning, I always feel bloated and hungry. Generally, I feel best if I stop eating by about 6 p.m., then again the next day around lunchtime. But on kickboxing nights, I feel like I have to eat at least protein. What would you recommend for me? Continue this way and extend my fast the day after to keep consistency in my fasting links. Why do I always feel hungrier the next day if I've eaten closer to bed? Even on non-workout evenings, it's the same if I eat too close to bed. I would love your input on the risks of not eating after a workout. All right. I don't think there's any risks to not eat for not eating after a workout. So there we go. Thank you for the question. The risks would be, like we've talked about this before, you need to get sufficient protein within the 24-hour period surrounding your workout, right? But it doesn't have to be immediate. Also, remember when we're fasting clean, we have increased autophagy. So some of our protein needs are being met from within our own bodies because we are better able to recycle and upcycle the proteins that our our bodies are breaking down. So keep that in mind. You know, we tend to think that all of our needs need to come from external sources when some of them are coming from internal sources. I'm trying to figure out, like, if if you're doing 17-7, it sounds like you are not working out in the fasted state. Like, you eat earlier in the day, then you go to kickboxing, and then you think you have to eat again just because you've you've done the workout. So I'm going to release you from that. You do not have to eat at 8.30 or 9 o'clock after kickboxing. You can just go to bed. You don't like to, to eat that late. Your body is telling you you don't need to do that. So don't do it. Just, you know, eat at your normal time before you go like you're already doing. Go do your kickboxing. Come home. Go to bed. Wake up the next day. Feel great. And maybe the next day you'll want to have a little increased protein during your eating window. But that's it doesn't have to be like, bam, immediately after working out. That's just a myth. As far as why are we so much hungrier if we eat late, for me, I really like to think of it as you're just not as deep in the fasted state the next day. And so your body's like, all right, feed me. It's kind of like the way if I eat lunch, I can't just do one meal a day that day because I always get hungry like eight, nine hours later. And so but I have to eat again before I go to bed. Same kind of a thing. You know, if you just eat and then go to bed, you're not fully in, you know, getting into that fasted state. You wake up and you're like, all right, now I'm hungry again. That's right when your body's ready to eat. 
And so then you have to like get to the fasted state. At least that's what it feels like to me. You're just not getting there yet. But if you are already, you know, if you eat a few hours before bed, then you go to bed, you're already a few hours into the fasting time. When you wake up, you're probably deep enough into the fast that you're, you know, feeling like you can just keep going. That would be my hunch. We had a question about this recently about that concept and why are they hungrier the next day when they eat later. And I, I agree that, that I think that's probably often the case. Yeah. So it sounds like when she's not kickboxing, she's eating between 12 to six ish. So yeah. So if you are, if you're not in the fasted state anyways, with the kickboxing, I would try front loading the protein because it sounds like what's happening is she gets back and cause she says that she um, feels the need to eat and I feel like it's because she actually feels hungry for the protein compared to she just feels like she needs to based on what society says. But it sounds like it's more that she feels like she's hungry. The way she said it, she said, on kickboxing nights, I feel like I have to eat at least protein. And I feel like the way that she worded it later when she said, what are the risks of not eating? Like she, instead of like feeling physically like she has to eat, I think she mentally feels like she has to eat. That's the way I interpreted it. I could be wrong. The reason I interpret it differently was earlier she says, I feel better once I've eaten. Yeah. It's hard to know. Yeah. It's a subtle nuance that could go either way. I actually think it's important for my answer because if if it's completely mental, like if it's completely just you think you need to be eating protein and that's why you're doing it and you feel better psychologically because you ate your protein, I would just not worry about that. (laughs) Um, Like Jen said, see how you feel not eating it. If it is a little bit or all that you actually are craving that protein and you feel physically better after eating the protein, I would not encourage you not to eat the protein, actually. Like I would have it earlier in the day, like have more protein before she works out. And then her body would have that protein then. Yeah, yeah. So I, that's what I would suggest. I would suggest trying that and seeing if that solves that problem of craving the protein. It very well might. If it doesn't and you still feel this need to have the protein, and again, it's hard to know exactly what you're experiencing, but I would probably work on finding the minimal effective amount of protein that you can eat that doesn't make you feel bloated. She says she's trying like a wrap with chicken, Greek yogurt, parfait, or protein smoothie. Like I can't imagine just a protein smoothie making you feel bloated the next day. I could see how it might make you feel hungry. I would maybe try something like, I mean, this might sound crazy, but just like a plain chicken breast, like, and, you know, without all the other stuff and seeing if that gives you that satiety and that good feeling from the protein post-workout and then not having the bloating issue the next morning. Oh, and then I also wanted to um, address, I wouldn't stress about extending your fast the next day for the consistency in the fasting links. Like I, I wouldn't really stress about that. I would just, I would just go back to, you know, what you do normally that feels well. I wouldn't change it in your head mentally to make up for having a longer eating window the day before. But if you naturally want to fast longer, I would just say, go for it. I would just let it happen naturally. Like I don't have really one answer. I think it's going to require some some experimentation to figure out what is the best solution. Absolutely. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible is excited to offer members a new way to explore their interests with the new Plus Catalog. 
This holiday season will certainly be more special than last. It's finally time to gather together and exchange thoughtful gifts with the people you care about. In the midst of all the holiday excitement, think about giving yourself the gift of an Audible membership. Now is the absolute best time to do it with a special offer of 60% off your first three months. With Audible, you can listen to more of whatever you're into because Audible has it all. An unbeatable selection of audiobooks, tons of binge-worthy podcasts, and exclusive originals. All available to download or stream. Here's what you get. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month, like the latest bestseller or hottest new release. Yours to keep forever. You can listen to Melanie's book, What, When, Wine, or either of my books, Delay, Don't Deny, or Fast, Feast, Repeat. And coming January 4th, you can listen to Cleanish. Here's the best part. You also get full access to Audible's streaming library, the Plus Catalog. Discover your next podcast obsession, check that audiobook off your bucket list, or get lost in a world of original content from celebrity creators, best-selling authors, and leading experts. The kind of stuff you can't hear anywhere else. Stream all you want, as much as you want. No matter where you're going or what you're doing this holiday season, you'll always have just the right thing to listen to at your fingertips. Now that I'm doing a lot of driving to the beach and back, Audible is the perfect companion for each trip. There's so much to choose from that I will never be done finding great options. Right now, for a limited time, save 60% on your first three months of Audible. That's only $5.95 a month. Give yourself the gift of listening. For more, go to audible.com slash ifpodcast. That's audible.com slash ifpodcast. Or you can text ifpodcast to 500-500 for 60% off your first three months. That's definitely a gift you'll love to give yourself. And now, back to the show. Yeah, but I think we can definitely, if anything, we can help you with the psychological concerns about, you know, needing to have protein right away. Right. Yeah. At least you can say, no, there aren't any risks. (laughs) There are no risks. She's trying to lose weight. So it doesn't sound like she's trying to, you know, be a bodybuilder and build muscle. If you were like a competition bodybuilder, something like that, I do think that actually has a different set of rules (laughs) as far as, I mean, it's really intense with you know, the exact methods to follow with eating protein to get the maximum muscle protein synthesis and things like that. So I'm not talking to like the bodybuilding people here. I'm just talking to people who want to work out and support their muscle during that and then the timing. So just as like caveat. Yep. That sounds good. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. These show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 259. All of these stuff that we like will be at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. And you can follow us on Instagram. I am Melanie Avalon and Jen is Jen Stevens. And I think that is all the things. All right. So anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. I'll just talk to you next week. Okie dokie. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. 
We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. Theme music by Leland Cox. See you next week.